Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Is God in complete control of who will be saved? Or do we have the freedom to choose for ourselves? So there is the bottom line question of disagreement. Now we're going to flesh this out and see all the little uh, nuances of all the disagreements here. But that's the primary issue. Is God in complete control of who will be saved and who won't be saved? Or do we have the freedom to choose for ourselves? Is the ultimate decision up to God or is the ultimate decision up to us? So you have to frame the question uh, in that way to understand where, where the disagreements come from. So let's talk first, just from the Bible, three primary words that deal with these issues uh, that we might be able to study a little further and see where these disagreements are on this issue. Here are three few of the biblical words that are in question. Number one is the word ek lego. Ek lego. Uh, when you see it translated in your English Bible, it would be the word I elect, elect, election, uh, whatever other forms there are of that, from two Greek words put together. The word ek, which means out, so think exit or exodus, out, away from, and lego. Don't think of the toy lego, but think of speaking. Uh, or saying something. And so when you put those two together, outspeak, you say, I don't even know what that means, but the word elect comes from that, to speak out, to pick, or to select for oneself. Imagine if you had choices in front of you, and you were to call out one for yourself, to speak that one out and pick it for yourself. That's the, the picture that's here, to pick, to select for myself. Ek lego, I elect, I choose, I pick. Next word is the word pro orizo, from another combination of two words, pro meaning before, we get that, right, prologue, it's a foreword, uh, or to proceed, to go before, um, in, this, in this case it means before, orizo comes from that Greek word horizo, you see the word horizon there, it means the limit, or a boundary, and so when something is for limited, it is marked out, limited, destined beforehand. So when you see the words such as in Ephesians chapter 1, predestined, or I predestined, that is this word, to mark out beforehand or to predestine, to set the limits, to set the boundaries beforehand, to set the end, the destiny, the horizon, or it's so. And the third word is prognosco. You know the word pro now, before. Now we have that combined with the word gnosko. If you know about gnosis or the Gnostics that emphasize knowledge, that's where this word means, knowledge, gnosis. Gnosko is the verb form, I know, to know. And so prognosco is the combination of those words before, to know, before I know. So it's I know before, or you might be more familiar with this biblical word, foreknow. Foreknowledge is the noun form of this verb. So these are the three kind of main biblical words we see in Scripture from which all the discussion comes from. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, we had two of them right back to back from Sunday morning. Even as he chose, elected, that's that word, eklego. And then in, in verse 4, uh, or verse 5, he predestined, pro orizo. If you go over to Romans chapter 8, it says, those whom he foreknew, pro gnosko, he also predestined, pro orizo. So those are the words that are all over the New Testament that get us into this issue of election, predestination, and foreknowledge. 
And of course, it uh, leads to the questions about the freedom of the human will. Well, if God knows everything that will happen, foreknowledge, or even further, if God predestines everything that will happen, even individual salvation, and if it's God who chose who would be saved in election, then what do we do with human free will? Do we or don't we have the chance to choose? What do we do with verses that seem to indicate whosoever will? If God has already determined, if God has already marked out beforehand, that's where all the issues come from. Uh, these are not uh, uncommon words in the Bible, but when we begin to apply them to that salvation issue, that's where the debate comes in. We all agree that these words and concepts are in the Bible. At least we should. Well, I can, <laughs> I can tell you stories where I've sat down with people and talked about these words, and they just simply don't want to hear the word predestined. I don't want to talk about the word election. And you have to sometimes talk to people and say, listen, these words are in the Bible. We have to agree that they're biblical words. They're biblical doctrines. Now, we can then disagree on how they're applied, how people are chosen, how people are elected, how foreknowledge works in relation to all of this, how human freedom works into all this. But we don't have the liberty to come to Scripture and scriptural words and stop our ears and just say, nope, I don't want to hear that word. I don't want to talk about that word. I don't want to ever hear this again. As much as we don't want to think about it sometimes, we have to deal with it. Why? Because it's in the Bible and it's God's word. We all agree that the words and concepts are there. We disagree over how these words and concepts apply to individual salvation. Okay, so there, there's the agreement. There's the disagreement. So let's look at the historical context a little bit. And as I did with the issue of the gifts last month and uh, Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, this is a whirlwind, bird's eye view, fly through history tour of, of where these discussions have come from biblically. It's not a new controversy. In fact, you can look in Romans chapter 9 and see that it's not a new controversy. Paul is dealing with the issues of election in Romans 9, and there's this hypothetical person that is arguing with Paul. Now, this isn't a real person. Paul is saying, suppose someone would say to you then. So he anticipates that there's going to be argument with this doctrine and with this idea. So, I mean, the controversy has really existed since the apostle, uh, the apostolic era. But let's, let's flash forward to uh, the 5th century, so the 400s AD, with two guys that you may or may not have heard of. One, probably not, uh, Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk, so living on the British Isles, uh, subject of the Roman Empire at that time, and he was uh, a monk. So he was a Christian, a Roman Catholic uh, monk. Augustine, also eventually a Roman Catholic monk, in, in fact, establishing his own order of monkery, uh, the Augustinian order uh, of monks. And so these two exchanged a lot of letters. Uh, Augustine wrote several books, as did Pelagius, in response to one another. And it all stemmed from one prayer, so the story goes, in which Augustine, praying to God, said, O Lord, Grant or command what thou will, and then grant what thou dost command. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Uh, every, it's on the surface, it sounds like that's, that's fantastic. L Lord, command what you will, and then grant what thou dost command. Well, Pelagius heard these words and was enraged at these words because he said, why on earth would God command us to do something that we were not already able to do? So he took issue with the fact that Augustine was saying to God, tell us what to do and then enable us to do it. Pelagius said, if God tells you what to do, you must be able to do it. So there's the friction that occurred between these two individuals, and I'll tell you where it gets to the issue of salvation in a minute. Augustine insisted that God must give man grace to be able to do anything, especially in obeying him. 
That was the crux of Augustine's prayer, wasn't it? God, you command what you will, but then God, you must give us the grace to be able to do what you command us to do. So Augustine, yes, said grace must precede everything. God can tell us what to do all day long, but we don't have the ability to do it in our sin unless he gives us the grace to be able to do it. Pelagius said, no, man must be able to obey in and of himself or God's commands would be unfair. So for Pelagius, if, if we were unable to obey God because of sin, if it was that bad that we could not obey God, and God nevertheless tells us stuff to do, knowing we can't do it, isn't that cruel and isn't that spiteful of God, unfair of God to ask us to do that? Especially for Augustine, when it came to the issues of repentance and faith. And this was the core of the issue for these two guys. Salvation. For Augustine, God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. But they cannot repent and obey the gospel unless God gives them the grace to do so. And Pelagius said, no, if God commands you to repent and believe, you don't need something happening beforehand to make you able to do it. You must be able to do it in and of yourself. It must be something you can do. Now, this came to a head, and one of the issues taken up at the uh, Council of Orange, that's a fun one to go look up in the 400s, it was this issue. And the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, it would have been called the Roman Catholic Church at that point, that the Catholic Church decided against Pelagius and for Augustine and condemned Pelagianism as heresy. Now we're going to get to later how these are not the only two options to choose from, but at that point, just, just listen to those two ideas. God must give us the grace to do what he commands us to do, even to repent and believe. Or we can do it in and of ourself. Okay, so put a little star there. We're going to see where this debate comes up later uh, and how it's nuanced a little bit. So let's fast forward a thousand more years to the time of the Reformation. Two prominent reformers, if you were around in Reformation Month, you heard their names many times. Martin Luther and John Calvin, both very much influenced by the writings of Augustine. Now, one, of the whole, one of the whole issues of the Reformation was going back to the church fathers, going back to the apostolic era, and discovering what did Christians believe before it got clouded up with all the junk of the Roman Catholic system that they knew by the 1500s. What were the basics of the Christian faith that our fathers believed, like Augustine, before it got covered up with all this other stuff? So they're going and reading the church fathers, Augustine being one of the ones they read, and they discovered this, I'm using hyperbole a little bit, they discovered this whole idea, look, we're saved by God's grace alone. They emphasized the grace of God in salvation, going and looking at Augustine who said, no, God's grace must go before everything. It enables us to be saved. The reformers latched onto that, and we talked about this in Reformation Month, sola gratia, by God's grace alone are we saved. They also said, Calvin being the main one that, that um, formulated this a little more, by grace alone, God predestines some to salvation while leaving others in their sin. Now, Luther believed this uh, mostly about as much as Calvin formulated. Now, and, and again, this was not new for Calvin. Calvin, it's funny because they get called Calvinists, but um, the, Calvin's reading Augustine, and Augustine is, is basing it on the Bible, and so uh, Calvin would, would shirk at anyone being called uh, Calvinist. Uh, Nevertheless, these two men, Luther, Calvin, believed much of what we would call Calvinism in terms of predestination. They believed this doctrine. 
that God had predestined some to salvation while leaving others in their sin, and this was by God's grace alone. Now, a couple words that are important in this sentence, grace alone, that it's grace alone that predestined people, according to Calvin. It wasn't God's response to their work. It wasn't God's response to their choice. It was God's response, namely, to his own decree to save them. So it was God's grace alone, not grace plus my will or grace plus my choice or grace plus anything. It was God's grace alone that did this. The other word that's important is leaving. Uh, we're going to talk about what double predestination means in a minute, uh, but, but leaving is, is the, the key word for Calvin, that God did not predestine in an active way people to go to hell. People go to hell because of their own sinful choices and decisions. People go to hell because they're sinners and they willfully sin. So God does not need to do anything to send anyone to hell. He condemns them there because of their own sinful, uh, sinfulness. For Calvin and the Reformers, leaving them in their sin was the language. He did not choose them unto damnation, but rather leaves them in their damnation while choosing others to be saved according to his grace and his will alone. Now, after Calvin, so we, we sometimes kind of think that all this was at the same time. Uh, I think Calvin would have been <coughs> in his teens or 20s when Luther nailed his theses to the church door in Wittenberg. So uh, they were not contemporaries, so to speak. And neither was this next man, James Arminius. He came uh, a couple decades even after Calvin. James Arminius was a Dutch professor, a Dutch pastor. Now by this time in the early 1600s, the Reformation had swept Europe. And with the exception of Spain and Italy, most of Europe was either Lutheran, Protestant, or Reformed, Protestant. And that would have been the groups coming from Calvin and Zwingli. And there were little pockets of Baptists by then, too. And then there were the Anabaptists. So much of Europe was already Protestant. And uh, in the Dutch Netherlands, it was predominantly the Reformed Calvinistic churches. So that's what James Arminius was a part of when he taught uh, seminary, taught preachers, taught pastors how to preach and to uh, teach the Bible. But he came to object to some of the Reformed Church's teachings on grace and free will. A group of folks that followed Arminius uh, became, this was after his death as, as well, uh, became known as the Remonstrants. Uh, I didn't put that on there for you, but R-E-M-O-N- S-T-R-A-N-T-S, the remonstrance. And uh, that's what they kind of labeled themselves as this group that was sort of protesting another Protestant Reformation within the Reformed Calvinistic churches. And they were saying, we, we've got some issues with what the Dutch Reformed Church says is Reformed Christianity. We've got to understand that from the beginning, these Arminians or these remonstrants considered themselves to be Reformed they considered themselves to be part of the Reformed Church. They just had these several questions they wanted answered about some of those issues. So it came to a head once again, and at the Synod of Dort, Synod is just a fancy church word for a gathering, uh, of Dort, Dortrecht, Netherlands, 1618 to 1619, this Synod examined five points of disagreement. So the Arminians, the Remonstrants, they brought five questions about predestination, grace, free will, the atonement, and so on. And the council or the synod of Dort was called to address those five questions, those five issues. Now what comes out of that synod, and remember I am simplifying, we are, we're speeding through this, and so there's lots of little nooks and crannies we could stop and talk about, such as the Anabaptists and this reform movement and this reform movement. We're looking at the big picture. Out of the synod of Dort comes two main branches, what we would later go on to just call Calvinism and Arminianism, and that might be the terms you're most familiar with today. 
Calvinists believe God chose to save a specific group of people, the elect. Christ came to die for and redeem those people specifically. The Spirit calls, watch this, and applies salvation to those people only. So in what we might call the Calvinist system, if I can simplify it, and I am simplifying it, God chooses who will be saved. Jesus comes to die for those whom God had chosen. And then the Spirit applies that work through faith to those who Jesus died for, whom the Father had chosen. Okay? And this is all of God's free choice, his, his freedom, his grace, his mercy, his love. Uh, it's not in response to something I do or something you do. Okay? Now, in the Arminian system, Arminians believe that God knew, that's a key word, knew who would be saved. These, then, are the elect. Now, do you see the difference? In Calvinism, God chooses who will be saved. Of course, he knows who they are. In the Arminian system, God knows who will, of their own free will, be saved. And therefore, he chooses them. These are the elect. Jesus died universally for the sins of every human being that has ever lived. And the Spirit calls people, many, many people, to salvation, some of whom may accept that call, and some may ultimately reject that call. Okay, so this is Arminianism in a nutshell. Uh, election is based on God's knowing who would come to him. Jesus has died for everyone, and it's up to us to appropriate what Jesus has done to ourselves, obeying the call of the Spirit uh, to be saved and to follow Christ. So I told you that the Synod of Dort responded to the Arminians' questions with five headings of doctrine. That's what they called it in the council, the Canons of Dort. They responded to these five questions with five doctrinal confessions. Though these headings have appeared in many different orders, um, the Synod of Dort doesn't give them to us in the order that, that we're going to talk about tonight. They give them to us in a different order. They have probably become most famous or infamous, depending on where you stand, as the tulip, or what you might have heard referred to as the five points of Calvinism. It's interesting because it was actually first the five points of Arminianism, which were then responded to and had become then the five points of Calvinism. So we're going to use this acrostic because it's just simple to remember. It's easy uh, although even many Reformed and Calvinist folks would tell you that um, some of the way these letters are, are used is not, not how they would define it. It's just easier for us to remember it that way. So we'll, we'll talk about those caveats when we come to them. The T in this system stands for total depravity. And we'll talk about what this means together. I didn't give you the spelled out sentences for, sentences for this because I just want you to take notes as you want to. We're going to talk about each of these five points under these three different understandings. Calvinism, Arminianism, and anything else <laughs> that, we, that we might be able to think of. Total depravity, and, and here's the thing, I want you to, to draw a little line between Calvinism and Arminianism and with a little point that comes together on this. Because believe it or not, Calvinists and Arminians agree on total depravity. Okay? So let's get that right up front. And if you don't believe me, we'll go talk to some real Arminians, and I'll prove it to you. Total depravity means that we are dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses. Total depravity does not mean that you're as bad as you could be. But it means that your depravity and your sinfulness goes all the way down. It affects every part of you. So that every part of you is touched by sinfulness and depravity because we are dead in our sins and trespasses. 
This speaks to our inability. You might write that word. Our inability. So think back to Augustine. Lord, command what you will, and then grant what thou dost command. Why? Because we are unable to do it on our own. Why? Because we're depraved. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot obey you unless you give us the grace to do so. And so, uh, right, the inability. And again, Calvinist Arminians, classical Arminians are in agreement on this. God's grace must come first. Now, for Calvinists, for the Reformed uh, theology crowd, we would call this regeneration, the new birth. That God gives dead people new life in Christ, and then they are able then to choose Christ. Okay? So that would just be the new birth, born again. And, and notice for Calvinists, if that happens, you're saved. If you're given regeneration by the Holy Spirit, you're saved, you're in. You're going to come to Christ in faith, and you're going to persevere to the end, period. The Arminian system, we would call this uh, prevenient grace. You might write that word down, prevenient Sounds like it's preventing you from something, but that's not what it means. Prevenient just means it goes before. So think about Augustine again. God, tell us what to do, and then give us the grace to do it, because your grace has to come when? Before we can do any of it. So prevenient grace, this is what the Arminian would say how this happens. For the Calvinist, how are we supposed to obey God if we're dead in our sins and trespasses? Well, God's got to make you alive by giving you the new birth. You're born again, and then you believe in Jesus. For the Arminians, how do we get over this deadness in our sins and trespasses? Well, this thing called prevenient grace, whereby God gives grace for understanding, for seeing, for hearing. But here's the Arminian difference, which you may then choose to take advantage of or reject. Now, there's some different pockets, and this might go into the other category over there, too. For the Arminian system, uh, classical Arminianism, um, prevenient grace comes by the preaching of the gospel. So if someone's in, a, let's just say, a revival or a church service, and they're, they're lost, they're dead in their sins and trespasses, unable, Arminians would agree, unable in and of themselves to choose Christ. Because listen, classical Arminians are not Pelagians. They're not even semi-Pelagians. Classical Arminians agree that we are absolutely dead in our sin and unable to come to God unless his grace comes first. But in the Arminian system, someone's hearing the gospel. They're lost, they're dead, they're unable to come. But by the preaching of the gospel, light is shown. And their blindness is, is, is trapped in that light. They're able to hear because the Spirit is moving, the Spirit is speaking. And they, they may then choose in and of themselves to come to Christ or to reject Him. So there's just a difference in how they see it. For the Calvinists, you're made alive, you're going to come to Jesus. In the Arminian system, the, one of my professors in, in Bible college, which is an Arminian college, uh, would have said it this way. The winds of grace are blowing, and you can take advantage of it, or you can leave it. So in, e- in both cases, they agree with total depravity, and that God's grace must come first. For Wesleyans, or old-school Methodists, which would have fallen in that category, Wesleyanism, um, some of them believe that God gives prevenient grace to everybody. That, that God has, through the death of Christ and his universal atonement, he's given prevenient grace to everybody. So that although we're, kind of, we're born in our sins and trespasses, dead in our sins and trespasses, because of Jesus' death, we are nevertheless able to hear the gospel and be saved. Now, you still have Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, which says, no grace necessary, we can do this. Uh, and and here's, here's my challenge to you. No matter where you end up falling on this spectrum, don't go there. <laughs> because classical Arminianism, even, even classical Arminian, free will Baptists, uh, Wesleyans, Methodists, 
they don't go there. At least they're not supposed to. But I wanna, this is one of those things where you, we kind of get challenged because when you step back and think about it, I remember being in Bible college and learning some things for the first time and coming to terms with the fact that I believed something that was technically heretical. And so we have to be careful that if you're going to reject Calvinism, which is fine, you don't jump off the other end of the boat and go all into Pelagianism. No, I can do this in and of myself. God told me I can. I can do this. No, there's another camp that you can look at and uh, think land in biblically speaking. Uh, Let's move on to unconditional election. Unconditional election. Um, As it appears there under Calvinism, you might just want to write a check. (laughs) This is what Calvinists would would adhere to. There's that word, election, predestination, choosing. So this is where we get into the how and the why. We all agree election's in the Bible. We all agree predestination is there. Now we're getting into the how and the why, which is where the disagreement is. For the Calvinist system, God's election of you or me to salvation is absolutely not conditioned, unconditioned, on something about you, something about me. In other words, God did not need to know anything about you to choose you for salvation. He was not looking into the future to see whether you would choose him before he chose you. Unconditional. It was not based on anything about you or me. What was it based on? God's mercy, his own grace, his own purposes, God doing what God wants to do. In the Arminian category, you might write an X because they reject unconditional election in favor of conditional election. That God does indeed know what you will do with Jesus. He knows the future. And so he knows whether Jared will choose or reject Jesus. He knows whether Mike will choose or reject Jesus. And let's say God foreknows that Jared will choose Jesus. And he says, okay, I see that Jared has chosen Jesus, therefore he is part of my elect, my chosen. Unfortunately, he sees that Mike did not choose Jesus. And I know, right? It's very hurtful. And then so he says, you know, because Mike has rejected Jesus, and according to my foreknowledge, I do not choose or elect Mike. So you see how even Arminianism upholds the doctrine of election, in a, in a sense, it's just a different way in how it's applied. Is it based on God's choice alone, or is it a combination of God knowing our choice and then him making a choice of us? And we'll, we'll look at some passages uh, a little later to talk about this. Uh, another thing you might want to write under the Calvinist um, column here is active and passive, active slash passive. And this is what we talked about earlier with the with God not needing to do anything to send someone to hell. God does not need to actively uh, elect anyone to hell because according to the curse of Adam and the fall and sin, we are all already headed to hell. You see, we, we have done that, and God in his justice, that's key word there, God in his justice, Romans chapter 1, has uh, left us to our sin and said, fine, If that's what you want, have at it. That's his justice leaving us there. Okay, So we talk about active election. That is God choosing from among everybody headed to hell whom he will save. And then the passive election in leaving the rest in their sin and their just condemnation. In the Arminian system... um, you can look at passages like Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1. And in both cases, you know, Romans 8, 29. Um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You see that? And so Arminians would say, okay, there it is. He foreknew us, and then he predestined us. So he foreknew who would come to him, 
and those are the ones he predestined. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, we just preached through this series uh, on Sunday mornings, and Peter says, elect what? According to the foreknowledge of God. So the Arminians, and there's a strong case in some, in some ways, say, okay, see, there's foreknowledge, and it even says our election is based on God's foreknowledge of us, presumably coming to Christ and being saved. In the other column, um, if you want to delve into some of this, you can. It, it just makes my brain turn in circles. But there's something called Molinism, which you're more than welcome to look into <laughs> on your own. Uh, Molinism would embrace what's called a middle knowledge. Uh, that God, because he's so wise and because of his omniscience, his all-knowing nature, God knows every possible outcome of every possible situation. And it kind of, when you begin to read this, and it's named after a Jesuit priest in the 17th century, um, and it, when you start to read it, it sort of starts to sound like uh, multi-universe stuff, <laughs> so it can kind of get weird as you're reading it, but that's the idea. God knows every possible outcome of every possible situation and every possible choice. He knows all that stuff, and somewhere in there is his divine will, and somewhere in there is your human will, and so this was an effort to marry divine sovereignty and human freedom without one impeding on the other. How it answers that question, I don't know, because it just... I'm, I'm done. So uh, I don't think it's biblical, but if you want to look at it, and you know, Molinism, M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M. And of, of course, in all these categories and the other categories, we could talk about um, uh, liberalism and beyond. I mean, uh, in terms of total depravity, if we're talking about liberal Christianity, most liberal Christianity would I mean, what, what, what they even do with sin, I don't know. So depravity wouldn't even be in their, their, uh, their dictionary. Uh, under the unconditional election category for others, you might write hyper-Calvinism. Now, contrary to what it might sound like, hyper-Calvinism is not just really excited Calvinists. It is, it is an exaggerated, taking to the extreme form of Calvinism that really just turns into outright determinism. Uh, what will be, will be, and, and so why bother? God will choose who he wants, he'll save who he wants, and so uh, some extreme forms of hyper-Calvinism would say, we don't need to tell people about Jesus, we don't need to do missions or evangelism. Why? Because God has already determined, and he'll save who he wants to. Okay, so that's, that's, that is an extreme, not... Calvinist view. It's a hyper-Calvinist view. All right, let's go next to limited atonement. If unconditional election is the most controversial point, I think, limited atonement is the most emotional point, I think. Uh, According to Calvinism, the intent of Jesus' death on the cross was not to pay for the sins of every single human being. But the intent of Jesus' death on the cross by God the Father was to pay for the sins of the elect. Remember the system? God chose who would be saved. Jesus comes to redeem them. And so Calvinists would appeal to like John 10, 11 through 15, uh, I lay my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down for them. Uh, Calvinists, um, you know, and I, I'd heard some, some reform folks kind of beat up on this a little bit, but looking back over the council or the canons of Dort, I think, this, I think most historical Calvinists would agree with this assessment, that um, the death of Christ was sufficient for the whole world. Of course, we all agree with that, but it was efficient and is intended only for, it's, a, it's applied only to the elect. In Arminianism, you have universal atonement, but it's conditioned. Uh, Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world, according to Arminian, classical Arminianism. Doesn't mean everyone will be saved. You must appropriate that atonement for yourself by faith. 
So Jesus has paid the price. It is now up to you to take advantage of that or not. So uh, appealing to 1 John 2, 2, uh, that Jesus uh, is the atonement for our sins, not only for ours, but the whole world. Appealing to John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so for Arminianism, Jesus died for everybody, but the benefits are only given to you if you accept Christ for yourself. Now on the other category is universalism. And, and this would be universal atonement without condition. So uh, hardcore old school universalist. Modern day universalist, universalist Unitarians are not old school universalist. Uh, I would prefer old school universalist because old school universalist taught that everyone must be saved by the death of Christ. But old school universalist taught that everybody will be saved by the death of Christ and that he died for the sins of everyone and regardless of whether or not people are appropriated for themselves they'll be saved because Jesus died for sinners that's universalism and no one ultimately ends up in hell forever modern day universalism is just a place for liberals to go to church so how that works out I don't know I don't know why they even bother I wouldn't bother go to the park or something irresistible grace is next um, limited atonement is one of those that, that Calvinists would say, I don't really like that term, limited atonement. Makes it, it's, it's weird sounding. They would prefer either like specific redemption or actual atonement or effectual atonement, some, something that sounds a little more positive than limited, uh, although they don't have any problems with the word limited. It just doesn't sound very good. Irresistible grace. This is the idea that um, those whom God called, or those whom God chose, and those for whom the Son died are the ones whom the Spirit calls to salvation, and they, listen, they will come to salvation. So when Jesus talks in uh, John 6 and uh, John 10 about the sheep knowing his voice and hearing his voice, and I will have all those whom the Father gives me, Uh, They say, see, there's irresistible grace. Here's another one that uh, Calvinists really don't like the name for because it makes it it sound as if people are drug, kicking and screaming into heaven. It's just, you cannot resist. Effectual call, the effectual call is another word they use for it. The the spirit, when he calls someone to salvation in in the Calvinist system, it's effectual. It does what the spirit wants it to do. So whereas in Arminianism, in the next column, the Spirit might call, but you can ultimately reject. In the Calvinist system, you can hear the gospel and the outward call all day and reject that. But in the Calvinist system, if that Holy Spirit calls you in the inward call, you are going to respond in faith and repentance and come to Christ. In the Arminian system, you can reject both the outward call of the preacher and the inward call of the Holy Spirit. So it would be resistible grace. Effectual grace conditioned upon the faith of the person hearing. Lastly, let's talk about perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints, uh, you look at the same passages really for um, irresistible grace. So when Jesus says, I will have all those that the Father gives to me, there's, you know, election, there's irresistible grace, and I will lose none of them, there's perseverance of the saints. I will have all those that the Father gives me, I will lose none of them, no one will snatch them out of my hand, my Father who is greater than I, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, there's perseverance of the saints. When Paul says that all those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, called, justified, glorified, Uh, The Calvinist system says, yeah, if God started this work, he's going to complete this work. Those whom God chose from eternity past will be saved. And if they're brought to faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit, they will persevere in that faith to the end and be saved. Might call it eternal security. And we'll talk about some of the nuances of, of some of that in a minute. In the Arminian system, apostasy is possible. Real apostasy. In other words, someone can be really saved and then really be not saved. Losing your salvation. 
um, appealing maybe to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, that those who had been enlightened, those who had tasted the heavenly gift, if they fall away, Hebrews says, they cannot be restored again to repentance. Uh, so a classical Arminians and Wesleyans would appeal to that to say people can really lose their salvation. Now there's disagreement in Arminian camps about how probable it is. I mean, for some holiness and Methodist uh, old school groups like that, I mean, you could, you could lose it and have it, you know, again, several times in the same day, <laughs> depending on your, on your standing with God and your sin. Uh, for classical Arminians, though, I think the, the phrase they would often use is that it's possible but not probable. And that just as much as coming to Christ was this crisis moment in your life, for classical Arminians, apostatizing would be the same. It's not just this thing that you have and you lose and you have and you lose. No, it would be a moment that you come to where you reject Christ, you walk away from him, and keeping with Scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, if you do, you won't come back. It's final. Contrast this in the, in the other category, there on the right, with what we call free grace theology. And free grace theology would take eternal security or what we might call once saved, always saved to the extreme. An extreme that says, now once you call on Jesus, whatever happens after that does not matter. And as soon as you, and they'll, and they'll tell you that, people believe this, as soon as you start talking about fruit or evidence of salvation, they'll say you're throwing works into the equation. This is hardcore, free grace, radical, once saved, always saved thinking. That all you have to do is call on Jesus and believe in him, and then you're saved. You might later become more mature. You might later become a disciple. But uh, in this rejection of what was called lordship salvation, they said no, no, no works necessary. It's just, it doesn't matter after you're saved. Okay? And so there's, you see the different views. Uh, there, there's, there's the perseverance. You will keep on believing and repenting. There's the possibility of apostasy. There's uh, the, the idea you can lose your salvation every day all the way to the really hardcore once saved, always saved. So let, let's talk in, in our last little bit tonight about understanding one another. It's easy for opposing sides to mischaracterize and misunderstand one another. This isn't helpful for truly understanding someone else's position, nor for rightly arguing for what you feel is correct. It, it, when we argue in this way and mischaracterize or don't know enough about the other position to actually articulate it, and then talk about it you know, knowledgeably, it's not helping anybody, is it? You're not helping yourself understand what you believe, and you're not really attacking what that person believes. You just end up arguing with one another over, really, ignorance. And in, in light of this, I thought about some what we call logical fallacies, and just, just three of them tonight that, that really just show the foolishness of this kind of arguing. The straw man fallacy is when you oversimplify or exaggerate another viewpoint and then attack that distorted version. So you picture the, the idea is that you make a straw man and how easy is that straw man then just to blow down. And if this is what you do with someone that you disagree with, you're not honestly debating with that person because you've not taken the time to understand what they're actually saying and seeing from their point of view, and they don't have the ability then to do that with you either. All you're doing is setting up a very simple version of what you, you claim they believe, something that you're able to then just attack easily, and it's not helping anybody. And both sides do this to, to one another. Um, and we'll talk about, let's get the other fallacies out and then we'll talk about how we do this to each other. Ad hominem. To the man, it means to the man. Attacking people who hold a certain position rather than engaging with the position itself. Now, we see this all the time, don't we? And one of the ways this happens with this discussion is, well, you know John Calvin had a man burned at the stake. So, therefore, Calvinism must be trash. You see how you've gone to the man and you've attacked Calvin, 
and you've completely really uh, ignored the rest of the argument. Uh, and this happens with people all the time. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing, whether it's uh, in a political conversation or a theological conversation, you say, well, if so-and-so believes that and they do this, then that all must be false. It's an ad hominem argument. It's a false argument. It's not healthy for uh, good debate and good discussion. The last one we'll talk about is false dilemma. You might have heard this called false dichotomy. It's presenting limited options based on extremes without giving all the options. Well, and here it goes something like this. Well, them Calvinists don't believe that you need to tell people about Jesus. I believe in telling people about Jesus. Amen. Everybody starts clapping. Amen. We believe. So don't be Calvinist. See? Those Arminians believe you can lose your salvation real quick, just like that. I believe we're always saved. Amen. Amen. There's more options than that. There's a spectrum of how Calvinists see this stuff and how Arminians see this stuff. And unless we take a step back and get rid of all the false dichotomies and really engage each other uh, with helpful biblical discussion, uh, we can't get to a real answer. So as I did with uh, the last uh, one, I'm going to spend the last five minutes here just talking about things that make me think. They are related to the discussion tonight. It's not just a random, <laughs> random thing. And we're not going to have time to turn to all these passages. You might just want to write these down separately, and this, this might be just good for you to go study. Without telling you just point blank where I stand on, on these issues, I think many of you know, and you can listen to my preaching and kind of hear, I think. Um, I want to tell you the, the passages and the ideas that make me think. First of all, I think one of the foundational issues is human ability. Human ability. I think John 6:44 carries a lot of weight. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus uses a word of ability, can. It's not that no one does come to me unless the Father draws him. No, that's true. It's no one can come to me unless the Spirit who sent me, or unless the Father who sent me draws him. Another one is Romans 8, 7 through 8. And again, you can go uh, do as the Bereans did. You go and search these things for yourselves and, and you're sensible people. Alistair Beck says all the time, you're sensible people. You can figure this out. Romans 8, 7 through 8. Um, Paul says the mind that is set on the flesh does not obey God. Indeed, it cannot obey God. That's language of ability. Not just that we don't obey God in our sin, but that we can't obey God in our sin. Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul's indictment on the human race that no one seeks God. And that's a heavy one, isn't it? No one seeks God. No one understands. No one does good. All have turned aside and gone their own way. No one is righteous. No, not one. Ephesians 2, 1. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Paul could have chosen any metaphor, and he does. He talks about lameness, blindness, but then he chooses to say, before Christ, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. That's language of ability. I think the next heading I would address is election. Let's just, let's just keep it at that, election. Interesting thing happens in Matthew chapter 11. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except those to whom the Father chooses to reveal them, to reveal, to reveal Him. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except those to whom the Father chooses to reveal it. The very next verse, though, is what? 1128. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. Jesus doesn't divorce God's sovereignty 
that he has to be the one to reveal the Father to us, he doesn't divorce that from the open invitation to come, and neither should we. Romans chapter 9, uh, you could just read the whole thing and let your mind be exploded tonight if you want. Uh, Romans chapter 9 deals specifically with the doctrine of election. And Paul is, uh, at least from my vantage point in Romans 9, pretty clear that God's grace and election is not based on our response to him. That, that God's choice of us is based on his own sovereign grace and mercy. Uh, in fact, it says before they had done anything good or bad, that God's purpose of election might stand. He says to Jacob, over Esau, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Uh, it's a hard chapter, but just take it in its chunk. In fact, maybe just read Romans 8 and 9 together and just see how those, those concepts flow together. In Acts 13, 48, uh, there's this interesting little phrase that those who were appointed to eternal life believed. You, you hear that? So, so here's Paul preaching the gospel, and then Luke chooses to, to put this little aside in there that as Paul's preaching the gospel, the ones who were appointed to eternal life are the ones who heard the gospel and believed the gospel. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 2 through 5. Paul, this is interesting too to me. Paul says, we know about the Thessalonian believers. We know that you were chosen by God. Elect. And how does Paul say he knows this? Because when we came to you and preached the gospel, it came with power. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We, we might formulate that word a different way, but, we did, but Paul doesn't. He said, no, this is how we know that God chose you. Because when we came to you and preached the gospel, you believed. And the word came in power. Uh, last one here, Philippians 1.29. That, that God has granted... God has given it to you that you, you should not only believe in him, but should suffer with him. And you might look at that, and yeah, the primary theme is suffering. But what did he say at the first part? That it was God that granted you to believe in him and also to suffer. Suffering might be the main theme there, but it's interesting that he starts out with that. God appointed for you to believe and then also to suffer. Um, let me just say these two last things here and we'll be done. When it comes to the atonement uh, and Jesus' death, I like to think more in terms of potential and actual. Potential and actual. In the Arminian system, Jesus' death creates the potential for everyone to be saved. But in the Arminian system, and this just makes me think now, scratch my head, <laughs> it doesn't actually save anyone. You see that? that? That in the Arminian system, Jesus' death provides the possibility of salvation for everybody. But it doesn't actually secure the salvation of anybody. And that makes me stop and think, what then did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished. What did he actually come to do if all that was done on the cross is just to make things now generically possible, but not really actual? The last one is the call, the outward, the inward call of the gospel. Just read John 10, Jesus as the good shepherd calling his sheep, and just kind of listen to his words through that lens now. My sheep know me, they hear my voice, they follow me, they won't follow another, they will come to me, all those whom the Father gives me will come to me, I have sheep that are not of this fold, they will hear my voice and they will come to me and I will have my flock. All that kind of goes into the call. Uh, and, and lastly, last scripture you have to write down, uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30. All things work together for the good of those who love God, called according 
call according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. We call this the golden chain of salvation. Why? Because it's an unbroken chain of God's act in salvation. From predestination, and listen, you hear it there, don't you? All those whom God called, all those whom he predestined, he called. And all those whom he calls, he justifies. And all those whom he justifies, he glorifies. And there's no, there's no breakage of the chain there. He doesn't call some that aren't justified, and he doesn't justify anybody that won't be glorified. And it's all according to his divine foreknowledge and sovereignty. Give me one more minute just to talk about these two little caveats that I want you to think about, and we'll have to talk about this later. Doesn't Arminianism teach salvation by works? Some Arminianism can. An extreme form of Arminianism could slip into salvation by works, that I have to do something to merit God's goodness or to merit God's grace. Here's the other side of that, though. Some extreme forms of Calvinism can slip into determinism, that we don't have to pray, we don't have to evangelize, we don't have to tell people about Jesus, what will be will be. There's always extremes to both positions. And on this spectrum, there's always unhealthy ways to hold to things. That's true of Arminianism. It's true of Calvinism. Uh, Well, doesn't Calvinism teach that we don't have to go on missions, that we don't have to do evangelism? Historical Reformed theology finds that absolutely repulsive that we wouldn't tell people about Jesus. Calvin whole nine yards any reformed theologian in the past centuries that that is biblical would tell you yes god ordained the end of all things and he ordains who will be saved but he also ordains the means by which they come to christ and so when jesus tells you to go and to be his witnesses or to go and make disciples that's not against his sovereignty it's within his sovereignty in that he chooses to use our prayers and our witnessing and our evangelism and our preaching to accomplish his purpose in the world. Does he need us to do it? No. But does he give us the grace and choose us to do it with him? Yes. And that's the beauty of it all. So just be careful and remember those little fallacies when you hear someone say, well, Calvinists, blah, 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 or Arminians, blah, blah, blah. Take a moment and say, is that really what they believe and is that really what they stand for and here's a novel concept for all of us as we close someone says i'm a calvinist someone says i'm an arminian or whatever it is that you're on the the spectrum somewhere someone says that go talk to them sit down ask them what they mean what they believe don't assume what they believe don't assume what they're saying about scripture get to know them talk to them see where your agreement is see where your disagreement is here's the good news about being a southern baptist our statement of faith the baptist faith and message faith and message 2000 for our church wide open on these issues the words are there election is there but it doesn't specify how and why that happens so within cooperating southern baptist churches we're able to agree to disagree on these issues All I ask is that we do it biblically. The worst kind of argument about theology you can have is, well, pastor, I just think. Well, pastor, I just feel. I just don't like. I like to think. Ain't nobody care about what we think or like or feel. What does the Bible say? And if you say, this is what I believe based on Scripture, and I disagree with you, that's fine if it's on these secondary issues. But all I ask is that let's be biblical Let's understand where the Bible comes from on these things. All right, we got to dismiss. If there are any questions, text me, call me, email me. We can talk, come by the office anytime, and we'll chat. All right? Thank you, Jesus, for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, your kindness, uh, that no matter how we see your grace and your mercy unfolding in our lives through salvation, uh, we all confess that we are nothing without you. 
and that we're nothing without your grace. We can agree on, on that much tonight. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love for us. We thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. And we ask that you give us the grace of your Holy Spirit to go from this place and to tell people about that marvelous, amazing grace that we have in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.